This is Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic, and I'm your host, Michael Crawford Zimring. This is a podcast about climate action and solutions, not doom and gloom. We are not planning on Mars as our next destination, because right here on planet Earth, there is a lot to be done. We bring you inspirational stories from women environmental leaders who are working on the ground in many different arenas, addressing climate change challenges. Their work is real and positive. We have created a platform to amplify the voices of women environmental leaders because they are committed to bringing innovation and compassion to the problems that affect us all. One of our solutions is to partner with Tree Sisters, and we make a donation to Restoring Forests on your behalf with each new subscription. We invite you to join us, listen to the podcast, and subscribe to the website evoicesrising.com. We also publish a monthly blog and newsletter with resources on our website. Stay with us for today's conversation. Today, my guest is Paola Jean-Turco, a photojournalist who has been creating beautiful photo books that highlight women's achievements and activism around the world. She even has one on grandmother power. Her latest book is Cool, Women Leaders Reversing Global Warming. She co-authored this book with her granddaughter, Avery Sangster. Paola and Avery interviewed 27 amazing women who are doing all kinds of work to reverse the effects of global warming. One of the most important United Nations sustainability goals is number five, achieving gender equity and empowering all girls and women, because that will have a cascading effect on the other goals, including education, poverty elimination, clean energy, reduced inequality, zero hunger, clean air, and water. The global achievements of women and girls in the field of reducing the effects of climate change and rethinking how we can do that is a story we need to tell. And that is exactly what Environmental Voices Rising Women at the Mic is all about. So I am delighted to have Paola join me today. Paola, welcome. Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Let's start with how did you conceive the idea for this book? How did it come into being? This book was something that had been on my mind for a long time because it was clear to me that climate change and global warming were the existential issue of our time. So I had been doing preliminary research about it, and I discovered that my granddaughter, Avery Sangster, was as interested as I was. In fact, before I even had a chance to get going, she had already organized her then sixth grade classmates to do a website about climate change. She lives in Los Angeles, and there had been two years in a row terrible wildfires that happened along Highway 405, just west of the city. That had been so disastrous that some of the, her friends, families who lived in that corridor, had had to come and stay at their house. So she was very aware of the effects of climate change and how dire they were, and worried about it. So we were talking about what each of us could do next. And I said, I've been thinking about this book. How about you do it with me? So together, we then 
launch the preparation for the book and with great excitement discovered something new. And that is that women are particularly capable and effective at causing improvements in the environment. And that's true, as you know, for companies that are run by women, countries that are run by women, investment companies that are run by women, and so forth. So there is an increasing amount of research that demonstrates that, in fact, women are just plain better at this. Exactly. Why I am interviewing women for this podcast. Before we dive into some of the stories, I wanted to ask you how you put the this book together. How did you find the women and decide who you wanted to interview? Well, first of all, it helped a lot that this was photo book number seven about women around the world, because that meant that some of the women whom I had interviewed in the past were in a position to see climate leaders in their own environments. So one thing I did was email them and say, here's what I'm seeing, what are you seeing? And they sent me some nominees. I also spent one year doing internet research. I must have Googled every country, Afghanistan, women and climate, to Zimbabwe, women and climate, so that over time I had this seemingly endless list of women climate activists literally in countries all over the world. The problem that I then faced was how to pick the most interesting stories and the most effective women. I did that two ways. Well, actually three ways. I was very interested in having a balance in the book. I wanted different geographies, different ethnicities, and racial representations. I wanted different approaches to tackling the problem. And I wanted the most effective of the women I could find. So I worked from Drawdown, a book that was edited by Paul Hawken and written by 200 scientists around the world. And as you probably know, they identified 80 different steps. You named number five and six, which was educating girls and educating girls about reproductive rights, which is important for all of the reasons you just named. But they named the top 80 steps that could be taken in order to hit net zero emissions by 2050. So that gave me lots of concrete statistics that I could cite. And it gave me a way to prioritize the work that these women were doing. So if their work was not on their list of 80 steps, they weren't in the book. I also then, having narrowed slightly the number of possible interviews, I talked with the woman who founded Women's Earth Alliance, whose name is Melinda Kramer. And I called Melinda and explained what I wanted to do. We had lunch together. I told her I have far too many people. I have to get down to about 25 to fit them in the book and ask if she knew any of them or knew of the work that they had done. So she helped me weed out the ones who were not as important as the others um, and helped me connect with some of those who were more important than the others. 
So over the course of about a year to a year and a quarter or so, I identified these 27. I never got to 25, but I did get to 27. And Avery and I began interviewing. That's lovely. I know Melinda Kramer, and we've highlighted some of the women from Women's Earth Alliance on our show. There was something else you said that I wanted to highlight, and that was a point you made. During your research, you found many women throughout the world working on climate change solutions. It wasn't that you could only find 27. You found many, many more, hundreds, thousands, from A to Z. And this just highlights again how many worldwide women are working on climate change solutions. But before we get into the stories, I want to ask you about Avery, your collaborator. How did your collaboration unfold? Avery is now 15, but when we started work on this project, when we did the first interview, she was 11. And then by the time we had finished the interviews, she was 12. So let me tell you, if anybody has a chance to spend a whole lot of time with an 11 or a 12-year-old girl, they should. It was great for me. I learned so much from Avery, completely unexpected things. People always say to me, she probably learned so much from doing this book with you. But the truth is, I was the one who learned so much from her. I'll give you an example. We finished the first interview and Avery said, grandmother, I have an idea. I said, what's your idea? And she said, we're going to be interviewing women leaders. They don't have much time. We may have one hour to talk with them. Let's put the top most important six questions at the beginning of the interview. I'll be the timekeeper. If they talk longer than 10 minutes, we'll go to the next question. And at the end of an hour, we will have the six most important questions answered. This was completely different from the way I had interviewed for the first six books. I always assumed that it would be, I would start with softball questions. Tell me about your family. Where did you grow up? How many brothers and sisters do you have? Things that were not difficult to answer and things that weren't embarrassing or complicated in any way. And over time, I would go to more complicated and more difficult and more personal questions and opinions. Right. That was the traditional way. (laughs) Exactly. And that worked. So when Avery made this proposal, I had to bite my tongue to keep from saying, that won't work. And instead (laughs) I said, okay, let's try it. Avery was absolutely right. These were women who were so busy and were so used to taking difficult questions immediately from reporters and journalists that we used that system for all of the interviews after that. She was exactly right to have intuited that that would be a good solution. So I learned a lot from Avery. Lovely. I love the way she thinks. (laughs) Okay, let's dive into a couple of the stories in Cool: Women Leaders Reversing Global Warming. I wanted to start with Kim McKay, the director and CEO of the Australian Museum, and getting a citizen science project going with an app, the Frog ID app. Tell us about Kim. Kim talked a lot about the fact that citizen science 
is crucially important to solving climate change and engaging people in taking action was centrally important to her museum. She and her other museum curators invented a citizen science project about frogs. It turns out that frogs are best identified not by how they look, but by how they sound. And there are many different kinds of frogs. I mean, maybe 900 or something. I can't remember exactly, but many different kinds of frogs in Australia. And as a result of the change in heat, many of them have gone underground. Some Australian frogs go underground for as long as three years until it becomes moist enough and cool enough for them to resurface. So it was very important for measuring the effect of climate change on the temperatures to see where what was happening with the frogs. So she invited people all over Australia to use their telephones to record the sound of frogs. And because the phones also gave them a GPS information that would help identify exactly where they were, suddenly they were flooded with information about different kinds of frogs, frog sounds, and frog locations that they had never had access before. Thousands of school children participated in addition to adults. And Kim had the collab- had a collaboration with the largest hardware store in chain in Australia. And if a school wanted all of their students to record the sound of frogs, the hardware people would run out and dig a little pond and immediately the knowing that there was water there, frogs came so the kids could record them. So they have been very effective in engaging thousands and thousands of students as well as adults with their frog ID program. It's probably, there are other museums and other organizations that are doing citizen science projects, but this may be one of the biggest and certainly the biggest doing citizen science about frogs. I'm a big fan of citizen science, and I participated in quite a few of them. They're a great way to engage not only students, but ordinary citizens. And you can actually learn a lot about your your local environment and your community. The The next story I wanted to ask you about was the youth climate strikes, Fridays for Future, and the girl leaders, and what you learned. Both Avery and I photographed them in different places and sometimes in the same places. I was interested because when we started this book, Greta Thunberg had not yet sat on the steps of the parliament in Sweden. So this happened literally as we were in the process of doing the book. I photographed a student climate strike in Denmark. That was the first place where I found myself in a position to photograph. And subsequently, We photographed together in New York. We photographed not only the group that has had at that point begun every week to sit on a bench outside of the United Nations, but we went with the New York group who were that day also climate striking in front of Fox News. 
and they had planned a die-in, which I hadn't seen before. They literally lay down on the sidewalk in front of Fox News, blocking all of the pedestrian traffic. People were stepping over people and trying to get around them and causing a great deal of attention to be brought to this issue. Avery and her father, who is also a photographer, photographed in Los Angeles a huge student strike in September that year, where there were more people striking worldwide than there had ever been before. And I photographed at the other end of the spectrum in my town, Mill Valley, California, where there were both young people and adults. So we had four or five places where we had seen young people, young girls specifically, protesting against climate change and global warming. One of the things he pointed out in this chapter was how geographically dispersed the girl leaders were coming from Australia, Belgium, Brazil, Canada, Ecuador, Chile, India, Germany, Kenya, the Philippines, Samoa, and many more. And also how clear the youth were that the promises made by global leaders are not actually change. So I'm glad you were able to document that as part of your story. 350.org estimated that there were 7.6 million people worldwide from 185 different locations participating in these protests. So let's go on, and I would like to ask you about Nelicky Vanderpeel, the Vice President of Materials at LEGO. Legos have been called the toy of the century, and they are made out of plastic. Tell us about Nelicky and what Lego is doing to rethink plastic. Well, you're absolutely right. I mean, there are so many Legos in distribution now that if there were an equal number for everybody in the world, that everybody in the world would have 83 pieces of Legos. I mean, these are... <laughs> These are pervasive. It was not only the toy of the century. Their company was identified as having the best corporate reputation. And one of the reasons that they have the best corporate reputation is that they are conscious of things like this. They are very well aware that if they were to continue making their Legos out of oil-based plastics, burning fossil fuels in order to make oil-based plastics, of course, increases the emissions. So Nelicky is the vice president of materials at Lego based in Denmark at corporate headquarters. And her job is to identify new ways to make bioplastics, not using oil or any fossil fuels, but instead substituting bioplastics. Her first test was a set that was made from sugarcane instead of oil, and she was able to produce a prototypical small set a couple of years ago. She says because they have some 4,000 different shapes and types of plastic and pieces, not types of plastic. She has to develop 20 different kinds of bioplastics. So she is continuing on this route. 
her method is to work with their suppliers, each of whom has a laboratory and chemical specialists. And as soon as they have developed possibilities, she then tests them in her own lab at LEGO. And LEGO has determined that they will share the recipes, the ingredients for these new kinds of plastics and the right to use them with their suppliers. And that means that the suppliers on their own can make those new kinds of plastics available to all of their other client companies. So in addition to Lego making this huge step forward by moving toward bioplastics, all of the suppliers, other clients, companies, who are making many different kinds of plastic items, have the opportunity to make the same change. I love this story because so many people recognize that the world is full of plastic and think there's actually nothing we can do about it. So having a company as large as Lego redesigning their products to use plant-based plastics is huge. Let's go on to Solar Sisters. This is an organization of women who have a unique model of working with women and energy in local communities in Tanzania. You highlighted Catherine Lucy, the founder, and Fatma Muzo, the country director. Tell us about Solar Sisters. Catherine Lucy is U.S.-based. She It was she who founded Solar Sister. Fatma Muzo is the Tanzania country director. Catherine had the idea that she might be able to gain distribution for solar lanterns in Tanzania, and she and a friend drove up to the top of a mountain someplace where there was a woman running a store. She said, do you think you could sell solar lanterns? And the woman said, I don't know. And she said, why didn't I leave you with 24 of them? And you can let me know how they how it goes. They drove back down the mountain. And before they even got to the mountain, down to the bottom, the phone rang. And it was the woman at the store who said, now what? And Catherine said, what do you mean nothing? She said, I told them all. So it became clear that women in Tanzania could, in fact, sell solar items and that there was a huge demand for them, particularly way outside of the cities. I didn't go to Tanzania. All of the photographs in that chapter were taken by Avery, who was there with her family on a vacation and who took time out to visit an area that was so rural that the woman whom they were going to visit had taken a bicycle taxi into the city to meet Avery and guide them back to her house because there were no street signs, there were no street names, there were no street numbers. Avery said they started off on a very bumpy kind of road, and after a while it wasn't paved at all, and after a while there was no road, and finally they got to the village where this woman lived. She and other women in the surrounding area were the entrepreneurs who were selling various kinds of solar equipment, lanterns, solar stoves, clean cook stoves, and so forth. And they were able to demonstrate both 
how they used them and how they sold them. And Avery documented all of that. That's her chapter. Wonderful chapter. It was really inspiring to hear from these women in, as you said, an extremely remote area in Tanzania, and how much they were able to help their families simply by having solar lamps. One woman said that she used one light to restructure her family's life. Also, this is a women-driven entrepreneurship, and part of the project is about education, education about the environment, and the empowerment that allows women to have a powerful position in their communities. I want to go on and ask you about Natalie Isaacs and One Million Women for a particular reason. When Natalie started out in her cosmetics business, she was not engaged with environmental issues or climate change solutions. In fact, she thought that was someone else's problem. Then she had this epiphany after seeing an inconvenient truth. Tell us about Natalie and what she created. She was particularly aware of this issue and of not being involved because her husband was a consultant who was working on climate change issues. She was doing none of that. She was, in fact, in the cosmetic industry. She had her own line of cosmetics. In fact, I think she had three or four lines of cosmetics, each more lavishly packaged than the one before, (laughs) using more and more plastics than the one before. And she was completely oblivious to the environmental impact that was having until she became suddenly aware. And then she thought, what am I doing? So she began closing those lines of business, which was a drastic change in her working life, needless to say, and began trying to figure out ways to engage people in climate action. And she had the idea that she would engage women all over the world in an organization called One Million Women. And she would have a million women who would act together to take climate action. Many ideas, she had many ideas and began researching how to do that. However, her experience selling cosmetics, which had grown very quickly, was not duplicated by one million women. She had thought she would have one million participants in a year, and she had only a few thousand. So she realized that she was going to have to pay more attention building this group. And she began building participation by telling more and more ways that were relatively simple that women could take action. So these are like how anybody at home could participate in doing something simple at home. What were some of those ways? Like saving water, I think, or something like that. Well, lots of them had to do with food waste. Mm. Right. So, for example, one of her ideas would be keep a container in your refrigerator marked used by Friday so that people would use before the date was up. And she would encourage people to buy only what they need and so forth. So this sort of gained steam and she decided to start an app that was available to anyone who was interested in taking action, the One Million Women app. And she posted 12 new ideas every single day. And 
not only did she post them, but she made it possible for participants to track the change that they themselves made as a result of taking that action. Let's pretend putting a container in your refrigerator that says used by Friday. She was then able to convert the number of women who did that by the amount of emissions that were saved and see the actual impact that one million women were having. I think she's not quite yet at a million women. She's at something like 998,000. She's getting very close. But in fact, they are working in a whole variety of ways that are making a big impact. This is really cool because as individuals, we often can't see or imagine how one small action can make a difference. But by using this app and having a way to see if I add my refrigerator energy savings to someone else's refrigerator energy savings and to someone else's, that we actually, it can add up to something that has an impact. Um, So let's go on. The last story I want to ask you about is a woman whose experience is on the other end of the spectrum, Sheila Watt-Clotier, an Inuit woman who has been involved in environmental activism all her life, growing up in a family whose lives revolve around traditional ways of living in harmony with the earth, and who learned from her mother and grandmother. Tell us about Sheila's work and her achievements. I was introduced to Sheila by a woman who was head of Greenpeace in Canada, who said, I think you'll be interested in talking with Sheila Watt-Cloutier, who had run the Inuit activist programs literally everywhere there are Inuits around the pole, the North Pole, in Greenland, in Russia, in Alaska, in Canada. So she was very well connected. The Inuit believe that everything in nature and including humans are interconnected and interdependent. And also because of their location and because of climate change's impact on the ice, they are drastically affected by the increase in temperatures. The polar bears are migrating further north and the polar bears, this is a culture that is based on hunting And so they wear the fur and they eat the meat of the polar bears and so forth. The shorelines are eroding and falling into the water. Sometimes dog sleds fall into the water. So the effects are drastic. Sheila says we see ourselves as the sentinels because what is happening here first will happen other places as climate change affects the rest of the world. So she was the first person to frame climate change as a human right because it was so affected all of their lives and in so many different ways that she essentially reframed the issue to think about it differently. And in fact, you and I do have a right to clean air and to be able to breathe well, but no one had talked about it in those terms. This is an activist who has on Wikipedia three full pages 
of awards for her activism. She even has her face on a Canadian postage stamp. Thank you for sharing a few of the stories from your book, which I am encouraging everyone to get a copy of, because in addition to the stories and the wonderful photographs, you've included ideas for action steps to engage in climate change solutions with links to resources and a QR code to access them. Tell us how this works. Avery and I wanted to use the stories about these amazing women leaders to inspire people to take action themselves. So we asked every woman whom we interviewed for three to six ideas that readers could take to support the work that they were doing. And then using a QR code that each reader could scan with her phone, we flew the reader off to the project website, which is cool, reversingglobalwarming.com. And on the website, there was a section for that woman leader's ideas. An example, we interviewed the Lord Mayor of Sydney. I didn't know a Lord Mayor could be a woman, but why not? the Lord Mayor of Sydney <laughs> is Clover Moore. Clover Moore said, never, ever stop asking your elected officials to work on global warming, work against global warming. And when people, readers of the book, scan the QR code by her ideas, they go to the website where they find out how to do what she suggests. So for example, the first thing they can find out is who are their elected officials. The next thing they can find out is how to contact their elected officials, both via email and telephone. The next thing they will find is a sample email that they might write to their elected official. The next thing they might find is in the outline of a conversation they might have with their elected official or a staff member. And finally, if they are really up for activism, they will find a way to sign up for Al Gore's advocacy training. So all of those are very concrete ways to take action, given the leader's ideas. I I just want to say how unique this framework is. I haven't actually seen it in any other environmental book. What are other ways that you are engaging to get the word out? We have had some very nice invitations uh, from some important platforms where we have talked. We talked at the World Affairs Council the evening before Earth Day last spring, We talked to the Commonwealth Club of California at the end of September. I've been invited to speak at the Vail Symposium next spring. So we are honored to be invited to speak on these important platforms. I am accepting invitations like yours. We are honored to have you on our platform. (laughs) I am hoping that people will be intrigued and will want to buy their own copy of Cool, which they can do at their local bookstore or via online. Both Amazon and Barnes & Noble have the book. Well, Paola, your book is cool in so many ways. It was delightful to discuss not only the stories, but to join you in promoting the leadership of women in finding solutions to environmental problems. Do you want to say a quick word about how the physical book was produced? 
That was very important to us, and fortunately also to the publisher, which is Powerhouse Books in New York. They talked to printers literally all over the world. They found one in Slovenia who had plant-based ink and who could use Forest Stewardship Council certified paper, which is sustainably produced. And both of those things were very important to us. We also arranged to have a tree printed for every book that's sold. So people will be participants as soon as they have a copy of this book. And 100% of the author royalties Avery and I are giving to the Women's Earth Alliance to provide seed money to women around the globe who are starting either nonprofits or for profits that are intended to reduce global warming. Paula, thank you so much for your work and this work, such important work highlighting and supporting women. I always like to ask my guests, is there are there other women who have inspired you or who inspire you? And I'm sure you're going to say your granddaughters. <laughs> I am going to see my granddaughters. They inspired me very much. As a matter of fact, Alex, who is the older of the two and who was my co-author on the previous book, which is called Wonder Girls, Changing Our World, Alex has just accepted an invitation to attend Northwestern University where she's going to study material sciences. So she is taking girls and STEM forward And who knows what Avery will do when it's her turn to step out into the world. Wow, thank you so much. That's a wonderful story. We will promote your book on our website. And I just want to thank you again so much. I really appreciate the work you're doing. And I'm so glad that there's somebody else who is doing this work. And we are bringing those voices forward. So Paola, thank you so much for joining me today. It's my pleasure, and I salute you and your important work. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. We invite you to follow us on social media, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at eVoices Rising. Share this podcast and subscribe on our website, eVoicesRising.com. We have a library of resources for you on our website so you can dig into environmental issues yourself. Catherine Hayhoe, environmental scientist, says, just start by doing something, anything, and then talk about it. Talk about how it matters. You can connect the dots with friends and family and make a difference. Stay tuned for more episodes. Until next time.